Welcome back to Brainy Plays, a weekly podcast about epilepsy by people with epilepsy for everyone. I'm your host, David Clifford. In this episode, we talk about personal independence and how to maintain it while also keeping ourselves safe. While there's plenty of things you can learn after decades of seizures, I'm not a medical expert. I now use this podcast to share what I've learned. I think one of the reasons why people with epilepsy are so interested in personal independence is because epilepsy is one of the few conditions for which one's driver's license is taken away. Though I understand why the decision is made, it is still frustrating as the number of automobile accidents where a seizure was involved is just a tiny fraction of those for other common reasons, like falling asleep at the wheel. If the general public had their driver's license taken away after breaking an arm, more people would be thinking about personal independence. Unfortunately, it's a privilege rarely thought of. Rather than being able to jump in a car whenever you want and go wherever, we are forced to rely on friends, family, and bus schedules. I'll admit it is soul-crushing, but we need to remember that personal independence is not defined by one privilege, but is in fact a spectrum. Personal independence is a range. On one side, a person in prison. What we've got here is failure to communicate. And on the other side, a young bachelor with a great job renting an over-garage bungalow. Louise, your prize is coming. Hey. While the instant reduction in independence caused by a lost driver's license can be downright frustrating, it doesn't force us to live in our homes like it is some type of prison. Even if you are sequestered to your home under 24-7 care, we know for sure that given the alternative, your family would love to have you in their lives. You are still not a burden. For those that feel a loss of driving privileges makes us so, I would like to point out that we all have responsibilities that reduce our personal independence in some way or another. If we're really true to ourselves, we would all agree that we have responsibilities that don't allow us to just immediately run from our life to do whatever we want. Though many of us would love to think we could, don't you have responsibilities that prevent you from going on a six-month motorcycle tour of the United States? Everyone lives with limited personal independence. It is just that we, the people of epilepsy, in some ways might be more limited than others. If you're a person with epilepsy, there are things that you really should consider before making a decision to live alone. If one lives alone, it becomes harder to recognize and track one's seizures. This is compounded further if one has focal seizures. There are many different types of seizures. Not all of them involve waking up after falling to the floor. Focal seizures are by far the hardest to recognize. The more eyes that are on you, the better the odds that a seizure will be witnessed. If one's seizures are not recognized, or worse, ignored, One can't assess how well medications are working. It can definitely increase the time it takes one to adapt to their seizures. Another negative side effect of seeking personal independence is the potential for independence to grow into isolation. A common trap for some people in our epilepsy community is to focus inward after a seizure. We try to shut down interactions with others as we are worried what they might say or do when we eventually have a seizure in front of them. Isolation is a real problem for many of us. To battle it, one has to make the effort to contact the outside world. This is even more so if you live alone. Best friends can tell that one is starting to shift into isolation, but because they are not in our head, they don't know why. This can often lead to a spiral effect, where the more one isolates, the less likely a friend will reach out. Of course, as one's life becomes more lonely, one starts to think there is no one there to help them. It just compounds on itself. A simple way to fight the isolation is by making a pact with those with whom you love to contact them on a regular interval. For example, calling a parent or sibling or friend each day at a particular time. If we miss the check-in, they immediately know that something is wrong. 
Many of us cannot call a loved one when we need it most, when we are having a seizure. Recently, there has been a series of devices that are designed to register when one is having a seizure and notify their contacts accordingly. At the time of this recording, these devices don't track seizures, but the motor component during one. Rather than scanning brain waves, they capitalize on the fact that during a convulsive seizure, there is a tremendous amount of movement. That begs the question, what if you don't have a motor component in your seizures? For example, what happens if you have opsonic seizures or focal aware seizures? These devices cannot recognize some types of seizures. Safety should always be a concern for us. Some in our community are just not safe living alone, and that's absolutely fine, right? We can mitigate the risks of living alone by adapting our home to make it safe in case we do have a seizure. When our daughter was born a few years ago, many of our friends who had already had kids came out from the woodwork to provide suggestions that would help make our house safe for the baby. I was surprised how my experience with epilepsy had already made me safety conscious. My experience with epilepsy had already taught me solutions to most of the suggestions that my friends provided. Each seizure through the years opened my family's eyes to a new danger. In fact, there are plenty of safety cases that even our friends hadn't learned yet. When they talk about house safety, most experts are concerned about children or fire, but rarely consider a condition in which one can lose consciousness at any time. For example, a safety expert might tell you to put a childproof barrier at the foot and top of each set of stairs. A person with intractable epilepsy will tell you to just not have stairs in your home. Our last home had a long flight of stairs. It was a pain. Of course, one can always scoot down the stairs. No, not like that. While I did scoot for a long while, I eventually succumbed and just started walking up and down the stairs. And each time I did, I'd often think, what if? If one is prone to seizures, there's another less obvious problem with stairs. After a seizure, many of us are often just too weak, tired, or confused to climb up a flight of stairs unintended to reach their bed. I'm much larger than my wife. While she always helped me to get up the stairs, if I had fallen, there was a good chance that both she and I would have tumbled. Also, there was many a night where I slept on the stairs too weak to get to the top, but too wheezy to climb back down. There's no doubt that people with epilepsy are prone to falls. In some cases, falls are caused directly by our seizures, but also there's a post-ictal stage, the time after the seizure, when we're tired and confused. A safety expert might say that to fall-proof one's home, one must attach tiny little cushions to the corners of one's furniture. Seems reasonable, right? I mean, no one wants to take a corner on their noggin on the way to the floor. To fall-proof a home, a person with epilepsy will tell one to reduce the amount of furniture that one has. Ever fallen on a piece of furniture? I have. Let's just say that we are both banged up. As you can already imagine, glass furniture is the worst. While safety glass is safer than ordinary glass, it still will cut. While the mid-century modern design might look great in magazines, we know that glass just shouldn't be in our home. It turns out that I know a lot about falling. For example, I can give you an honest rating for flooring by just how it feels when one falls on it. Spoiler, concrete tile with rough grout is the worst. While a real estate agent might boast that a home has hardwood floors throughout, people with epilepsy know it is always better to have carpeting. Many of us prefer to have a stain-proof dark color to prevent any messes. If one doesn't have carpeting, one can always try to throw rugs around the most active places in the house. However, rugs can lead to tripping when one is unsteady. 
When we are unsteady on our feet, it is human nature to reach out to the furniture to stabilize ourselves. When a toddler walks down a hallway, they might hold their hands out to the wall to steady themselves. When one is an adult, the same action can have serious consequences if items like picture frames or shelving are not securely attached to the walls. If they aren't, we might leave a wake of destruction as we move throughout the house to our beds. In episode 24, entitled Sleep Till Brooklyn, I described some changes that one can make to ensure their bedroom is safe. We talked about low bed frames and a few other suggestions. The kitchen opens a host of new problems. We could probably just fill a whole episode on kitchen safety protocols for people with epilepsy. Of course, if we did, it might be so boring that no one would ever listen. If you have to use a stove, use the back burners and turn your pan handles inward. Most of us know that working with a microwave is safer than a stove, but no person in their right mind microwaves their morning cup of tea. When a kettle must be used, I suggest buying an electric version. First, they are faster than traditional stovetop models. Second, most electric kettles have an auto shutoff feature. The bathroom is where things get really messy. Oh wait, don't use that. We're definitely not using the clip from Dumb and Dumber. Come on, you said messy. I know what I said. Guys, let's just keep on going. Something we have mentioned on our Twitter feed is that it's really hard to open a door to most bathrooms after someone has fallen. The problem is, is that most bathroom doors open inward. If someone is lying in the bathroom, there's not enough space to fully open the door. This is also a real problem for shower doors. Glass shower doors look absolutely beautiful. Who doesn't just drool at those luxurious walk-in shower picks in Zillow? If someone has fallen in the shower, they can actually prevent cares or even emergency crews. In a running shower is no place to have a seizure. A person can drown in as little as three inches of water. I came dangerously close to that. In episode 25 entitled Beating the Blame, I described how my college roommates found me after a seizure at the bottom of a shower covered in glass. My body had plugged the drain and water was inching up towards my mouth. After turning off the shower, my roommates were forced to leave me in the shower because there just wasn't enough room to maneuver my body out of the small stall. Jeez, I still have no idea why they didn't call 911. I never had the chance to ask. In my opinion, if that shower had a curtain rather than a glass door, it would have been easier for my roommates to move me out of harm's way. Another valuable lesson that my family has learned the hard way is that people with epilepsy should invest in great door locks. My seizures are focal to bilateral seizures. I have the best of both worlds. I had minutes of focal seizures before the seizures spread throughout my brain to cause a generalized tonic-clonic seizure. For some unidentified reason, during the focal portion of a seizure, I sometimes became an escape artist. A few times I made a beeline to the front door to leave the house. Even with impaired consciousness, I could work the deadbolt and doorknob combination that exists in most American homes. When one's consciousness is impaired, walking through the neighborhood, or worse, through the streets, is just not safe. Installing a complicated lock on all outside doors prevented my great escape to the outside world. Sure, the locks are annoying to work when one is trying to open the door for a pizza delivery guy, but if it prevents you or a family member wandering, then it is worth it. I realize that not everyone has the means to make all these suggested changes to their home. I mean, ripping out hardwood floors to put down carpeting is a multi-thousand dollar investment. Who's going to rip out shower doors from their bathroom to replace the tub? All that work sounds like my personal nightmare. The idea is to understand the risks and make small changes over time. But what about looking for a new home? Any real estate agent will tell you that when looking for a new place to live, it's all about location, location, location. A person with intractable epilepsy will agree. 
but it really is all about keeping everything low to the ground. A third-story apartment might sound great, but what about getting to and from your apartment that one week of the year when the elevator is broken? If you have intractable epilepsy and you live in a small town, it's going to be harder to find proper medical care. Greendale is a bodaciously small town, Lane. It's a fly speck on the map, a rest stop on the way to a ski slope. I can't even get real drugs here. When you are looking for a place to live, why not consider a location near a level 4 epilepsy center? Odds are, if you have already graduated to a level 4 epilepsy center, you are spending a lot of time there anyhow. It'd be a waste of time and money to continuously commute to it. We have actually included a link in our show notes to a tool that can be used to determine the nearest level 4 epilepsy center near you. In most cases, the hospitals and universities that host a level 4 epilepsy center are in big cities with great public transport. In some cities, living there negates the requirement for a driver's license entirely. Rather than letting your epilepsy reduce your personal independence, why not let it guide you? One last thing about driver's license. A year or so after my resection surgery, I qualified for getting my driver's license back. I have to admit that after getting my driver's license back, I didn't have immediate feeling like... Until this day, I'm still wary of getting behind the wheel. The moment I sit in the driver's seat, I feel the same twinge of that what-if feeling I had when I was walking up and down the stairs. Though I'm able to go on a road trip if I want, I probably won't. I have no problem letting my wife drive. A driver's license doesn't make you independent. Independence is a mindful lifestyle. Have you ever regained your driver's license? How'd it make you feel? We would love to hear any of your comments or questions regarding this or any of our other episodes. You can reach out to us via email at social at brainablaze.com or on Twitter at Brainablaze. If you like this episode, consider subscribing or even helping us by providing a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download your content. One small click really does help. See you next time.